Hello and welcome to episode number 197 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow along on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. In this episode, we speak to Constanz Lech. She is a journalist and the author of Territorial Stigmatization, Urban Renewal and Displacement in a Central Istanbul Neighborhood, published by Transcript. You can actually download the book for free via the website of that publisher. I've put a link up over at the website, turkeybooktalk.com. And if you're interested in the subject, I would indeed recommend the book because it's a fascinating, deeply researched piece of work taking a microscopic look at the changes wrought by the political authorities over the last two decades in a single central historic Istanbul neighborhood, Talabasha. The book examines how the authorities pushed through a controversial project to basically demolish and rebuild Talabasha, displacing thousands of people in the name of profit-making urban renewal. Talabasha has a fascinating history going back to the 19th century of Greek and Armenian middle-class merchants, later replaced by migrants displaced from eastern Anatolia, Kurds, Roma, Syrians and a sizable number of trans sex workers. Talabasha came in recent decades to be widely seen as a lawless place of poverty and deprivation, a den of criminality and vice. The Talabasha Renewal Project said it wanted to reverse these fortunes, but the reality was obviously rather more complicated. We dig into that in our conversation, but before we get started, let me appeal once again. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together, and I do need listener support, your support, to be able to keep doing it. Since we launched the podcast back in 2015, we've published almost 200 episodes, giving a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature, and the arts. It's incredibly rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks, and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do. It also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member, you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books, pre-orders or e-books. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of each episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. 
But now on to our conversation with Constance Lech. I started by asking her to introduce Tala Basha to us, what his reputation is or was, and what her personal experience is with the neighborhood. So yeah, I lived outside Tarlabasha when I first came to Istanbul, on the other side of Beolu actually, but I had friends who lived there, so I visited a lot and I went to the market a lot. And in these years, it was kind of clear Tarlabasha had a bit of a shady reputation, it was a bit of a place that people tried to avoid or were scared of. I touched on it a bit in my book, there was one colleague who said that he brought guests later at night to the bus station carrying a big knife. He was also a chef, so he had, you know, big knives, but like, kind of these stories that made it a bit, well, okay, that is, seems, you know, it seems a bit like a dangerous place, but I didn't know it, you know, I didn't know it very well, but I went there often and never had any bad experiences, but was intrigued by how this bad reputation came about. It was definitely a neighborhood that I liked a lot. I liked how chaotic it was. And I, I do recognize, you know, that at the time also there was a sign of a sort of orientalism, a sort of like romanticization of this that I uh, <laughs> would later kind of have to uh, rectify, you know, for myself, because of course, you know, there's it's very problematic attitude to the neighborhood. But it was definitely clear that it was a very diverse place with a lot of different groups on a very small area, let's say, you know, it was not a, not a homogenous uh, area at all. So that was interesting. And also people that maybe were not able to live in other places, like there was a big trans community, there was a big migrant community that you didn't see in the same way in other parts of Beolo at the time, or I didn't, uh, or didn't have access to it. And I also knew, of course, from the architecture and from, you know, what I had read and what people told me that it was an old Greek neighborhood, mainly a Greek neighborhood, you know, uh, non-Muslim neighborhood before. And it took me a while to understand why this was such a, a blank spot in the history. And in 2009, I believe, there was an article that came out saying that Tarlabasha would be renewed. At this time, I worked as a journalist already, as a freelance journalist, and I was interested, you know, in how this was received in the neighborhood because, you know, the, the claim was, okay, we're going to renew Tarlabasha, it's going to be great, it's going to be clean, it's going to be safe, we're going to reintegrate it into Beolu. Beolu already was gentrifying at a very uh, fast pace at the time. And so I started talking to people there, you know, as a journalist then, wanting to know, so what, what do you think of this? Is this is this a good idea? Do you think you can profit of this? Do you want this to happen? Because it sounded, you know, it was like a top-down project. The municipality had decided this needed to happen. And people, you know, were ambivalent about it. Yes. So the Talabasha renewal project, could you just introduce that to us? You know, what was it? How was it introduced? Who introduced it? And basically, what was it? And who was responsible? In fact, interesting, like I say 2008, and that is correct in the sense of this is when it was made public to the rest of Beolu. Actually, for the people living in Tarlabash or the people living inside the renewal area, uh, this was not a new idea because they had been approached by the municipality in 2006. So this was way before my time. But in 2006, by the municipality, and they've been asked, would you like us to apply for micro credits from the World Bank so you can all renovate your houses? Which people, you know, told me later they responded very positively to it. As people were very uh, up for it because the neighborhood, of course, needed an upgrade. You know, no one enjoyed living in dilapidated housing. You know, there was unsafe housing. The quality of the neighborhood was not great. So people were happy about this project. But then for two years, there was silence on it, apparently. So when it came up in 2008, there was an exhibition being opened on Istiklal Jadese. And you might know there's this Beolu a municipality gallery space. I think it still exists next to the Russian consulate. That's very it used to be and it was an exhibition that was pretty fancy and we went there the friends who lived in Tarla 
Basha and me, we went out of interest to see what would be introduced. It was kind of like a real art exhibition, you know, like people mulling around around tables with snacks and there were like pictures on the walls of the Talabasha project, you know, the images that would later be in the catalog as well, where you had like the before after split images of a street of what Talabasha looked like at the time and what it would look like after the renewal. There was a big 3D model in the gallery that people could see. And these catalogs were given out. And Beolu Meyer at the time, Ahmed Mispar Demirjan, held a speech and told people, so we're going to do this in cooperation with experts, in cooperation with the neighborhood. You know, this is a project in flux, still in discussion. And, you know, it's going to make Talabasha a better place and everyone's going to be happy. And interestingly, though, <laughs> the people in the neighborhood told me at the time already that they had not really been consulted on anything. You know, before when the, when the idea had been, we're going to give you microcredits, you can all renovate your houses. They had been up for it. But then 2008, it came out, well, actually, no, we're going to do this, you know, in one big swipe. And we're going to give this to a construction company and they're going to do it for you. And we're going to give you several options and you can choose from one of these options. And one was, you know, okay, you're going to sell your property to the municipality and through the municipality to the developer. And in return, you can get a space in the renewed project, which would usually was usually much less, you know, in square meter wise and money wise, much more expensive than what you had actually sold them. Or you would get priority, like, uh, you know, in these Toki housing projects outside to sit like in the suburbs. You know, when you wanted to apply for a Toki house, right, you have to go into this lottery system. You know, you apply for a Toki house, there's a lottery, and if your name is drawn, then you get it. And the people in Talabasha were promised, okay, you don't have to go to the lottery. If you want a house there, you can have it, basically. And this is, you know, Toki is very complicated, different topic, but the idea of social housing under the AK party, you know, Toki, a uh, Toki apartment, which you would have to buy. So, you know, social housing is not rental housing, but property that you would have to buy with a credit over 15, 20 years. Problematic. And as I said, very far out the city in these satellite cities, these Toki, Toki houses. And it did not, it did not include at all, did not include at all tenants in Talabasha. So these offers were only for property owners, which were only a bit more than 20% in Talabasha. So the huge majority in Talabasha wasn't even addressed by this, but only property owners. So it was the first problem that people were not very happy with. Tenant rights in Turkey are extremely weak. The municipality would talk to the person owning your building and you would be at the mercy of that person. The, the tenants I spoke to did not expect anything either. Like, you know, there was no, the municipality did not even take them into account. This was not really an issue in a way, you know, like, and even property owners, even people who had a title deed, you know, <laughs> were really kind of swiped out of the way by the force of the laws that were made just to, to renew Tyler Bashir. So even people who had, had actually the legal, you know, the, the necessary papers to prove that the building was theirs didn't necessarily have the possibility to resist displacement. So eviction started in 2011, I believe, and the project sort of moved forward, but it was always very murky. It wasn't really clear. There were different court rulings, either halting the, the project or allowing it to go forward. Some people resisted, some people refused to leave and opened up cases in local and cases at the ECHR to basically resist leaving their homes that some of them had lived in for, for decades. Could you just briefly talk about that process, you know, that what kind of um, ratio are we talking about? You know, how many people left? How many people wanted to leave? How many people wanted to stay? Was it a majority that wanted to stick around or were, were most people happy to move out? Just talk about that aspect of things. 
that is a little bit difficult because like, you know, I concentrated on a small group of people actually that I followed and the attitudes of people that I spoke to during the time changed. You know, like, as I said in the beginning, people were not against the project. You know, they did not resist the project. They did not resist the renewal per se. They wanted to live in better houses, safer houses, or they did not like us for being like displaced from their neighborhood and, you know, being put into debt by the government. For example, one very stark example there was, for example, a couple, a retired couple who lived in a beautiful, I think it was five-bedroom apartment, 11 house that they had bought. They had the title deed to it. I think it was 120 square meters. You know, their children had moved out. They lived there by themselves at the time of the project. And the husband, who was, you know, a little bit ill, and not a very, you know, not very courageous, let's say, in the face of authority during these negotiations with the municipality. Because what happened is people were called into uh, the sales office across the, you know, across the street, across Talabashi Boulevard. There was this kind of building where the municipality, the Beolu municipality, had offices jointly with the developer, Chalik Holding, you know, Gap and Shad, which was a sub-company of Chalik Holding. And people were kind of invited there for negotiations. But what often happened is that they were kind of, you know, yelled at and pressured into signing contracts that they did not want to sign. And if, you know, if the Gap and Chart lawyers did not manage to, in inverted commas, convince a person to sign, then they would often be sent next door to the municipality, municipality office, where, you know, then a municipal officer talked to them. I mean, a very problematic way, you know, doing business, this public-private partnership anyway. But so this man, you know, he went to this, to this office several times. It was his name on the title deed. They often only invited the person whose name was on the title deed into the office. So family members could not come or were not admitted or were not taken into account, you know, in the same way. And uh, he said afterwards that he had signed under pressure, that he had just had eye surgery and they'd yelled at him and told him, if you don't sell now, then you're not going to get anything. He signed a contract under duress and had not read the contract, you know, at the time that he signed it. And when he came home together with his wife and their children, they read the contract. And it was something like, well, you just agreed to sell your apartment to the municipality, I think to like for 90,000 lira at the time, which was way under market price, even in 2010. And in return, you agreed to an apartment of 40 square meters, I think in a, so they lived in the five, in the fifth story of a, of a house, of the new development, I don't know the numbers exactly, but it was like 60,000 lira in debt. So they lost their apartment. They were 60,000 lira in debt. They lived on the pension of that man who had worked as a textile worker his whole life and had no other income. So you can imagine the kind of distress, you know, the, the, the family was in when they realized what he had signed. Um, and this happened, you know, this is a this is one example. This happened, you know, in different versions and different ways in Tyler So people kind of got something in return, but it was not it was not an equal, let's say it was not it was not legally not sound. So people agreed to things under circumstances that they would usually not have agreed to, I would suppose. It also happened that there was one man who had signed over his whole building. So he owned a building where there was a shop in the bottom, like one of these second-hand furniture shops, an apartment, and then three apartments on top of that that he rented out for like a small amount. And that's how he kind of bolstered his meager pension. He had signed over this building right in the beginning of this of this process. And he had been promised two apartments, I think, in the new development. But in the meantime, of course, did not get any of this rental income. This rental income was gone. And there was also no way of knowing when would the new development be finished? When would it be at the point that I can actually move in there or sell these two apartments, you know, at a profit? 
And in the meantime, you're kind of, you know, left without any information. So that was also uh, a big problem. Uh, and people changed their minds. You know, I also talked to people who were like, oh, we're going to resist. We're not going to move out. No way. And then like a few weeks later, they had found an apartment. There was this one guy, a Kurdish man who was very kind of fighty. He was like, no, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to let them displace me again. He was a tenant, actually. But he was convinced, you know, like really convinced that he would resist because he had a shop and an apartment for his family on top of the shop. And then he had another shop for his son in the development zone. So it was very difficult for him to find something equivalent elsewhere in town. But he did in Bacheli Evler. And, you know, he found something there. He was like, oh, it's nice there. It's much nicer than Tarla Bashes. Or no, 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 I don't, I don't care. I don't mind. And some people also did not have anywhere else to go. You know, like, for example, a very uh, important example, I think, is this uh, trans woman I talk about, Müge, who had a you know, rental apartment in this street that I mentioned. And she worked there. She worked from home. Like, her landlord did not mind that. She was a sex worker. And for her, it was also right next to kind of a administrated brothel of other trans women who worked uh, in the same street. So there was a community, also like, you know, community that they could hang out together, but also for safety. You know, they didn't have to go to these uh, highway places that uh, many trans sex workers have to go to, you know, where you kind of risk physical violence and assault. So this was also a place of safety. And close to home. So for her, moving out of there and doing her job somewhere else in Istanbul was almost impossible. You know, like, it's not that she loved Harlabasha so much, you know, but uh, there's many reasons I talk about, you know, why she had problems with her neighbors, but she also realized there was a social network and she was also accepted there. For her, it was very difficult to find an alternative elsewhere in Istanbul to both work and live and, you know, be able to pay the rent, be able to access all the things she could access. You know, there was a lot of LGBT or then, you know, then there were a lot of LGBT associations in Beolu. So the community was kind of close by. And she said herself, you know, like we felt safer in numbers because there was many of us in the same place. So we also felt safer against police violence, against customer violence. And there was a whole infrastructure for trans sex work, you know, these hairdressers and makeup shops, cafes that, you know, accommodated them during work time and so forth. These things are very fragile and cannot be replaced easily. So that's one, that's another, another reason you know, that people were ambivalent about it. And from there didn't necessarily come that they would resist in any way, but that they you know, still didn't want to leave. Then there were people who were very keen on leaving in the beginning, very supportive. And then little by little, when they realized what the project entailed, kind of came back on that, you know, on that opinion. Like business owners were also tenants who were like, yeah, it's great. I can't wait. You know, this needs to be done. Tarlabasha has kind of deteriorated. It's now so dirty for just that and another reason. And finally, they cleaned it up. But then year by year, when they saw how the project progressed and how people were not involved and how the, the municipality treated people, came back on that and were like, no, 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 this is actually not right. One uh, barber. Uh, you know, who had worked in Tarlabasha all his life from when he came to Tarlabasha as a 10-year-old apprentice to his Emeklilik. Yeah, he was kind of crestfallen when he realized what it meant that the neighborhood was, you know, destroyed around him and all his, his friends and people who he had played cards with, the cafe houses he had frequented kind of disappeared. And yeah, he never got over it. You know, like he, he is still, he lives on the Asian side in Bostanje, in a site, so in a gated community. There was also an interesting case because he, he lived in that gated community. He had taken his family out of Tarlabasha saying, you know, not a place to raise a family. It's nicer, you know, uh, on the other side, it's very 
civilized and you know, medeni and it's very clean and it's very modern you know these kind of words that people will use to to describe this uh, gated community housing in istanbul but when you know when i asked him he hated it <laughs> you know he you know he was retired on paper but as many people do in turkey he still was working in his barbershop and he came every day he even came on sundays on holidays saying like i don't know what to do with myself in bostanje there's nothing to do you know all the people i want to talk to and i want to hang out with are here i don't even know the the name of my neighbors in my building you know we pass each other in the hallway we say you know good morning good evening when we see each other we know nothing about each other and Tarlabasha is where, where I know everybody so for him this is uh, this was yeah it was traumatizing you know like when when he was one of the last to leave in the street he said he felt orphaned the people around him started to leave started to be evicted the home started to be you know like because when people started to move out there was also a lot of looting and people or people took you know the windows the doors wooden structures so the homes kind of also looked what's the word gutted a bit yeah like a bit half ruins around him it was terrible when his when his uh, tea house closed down the street he didn't know what to do with himself anymore and he doesn't like to come he da- he does come back he comes to visit but for a long time it was really like a part of him was lost that's also how he described it So there it's not a very straightforward I can I can't really answer you know if it was a majority that didn't want to leave or not but it was definitely a very conflicted and very traumatizing process for many people over the years it was a very fraught process over a very long and very uncertain time and one of the key times that you talk about in the research is stigma or the territorial stigmatization of Talabasha and basically that refers to how the project the municipality the private developer kind of leverage this idea of Talabasha's bad reputation to legitimize and justify the whole project you know saying that the destruction of Talabasha would you know improve the district for everyone for people who wanted to move in there and for the people already living there yeah. the reality was quite different but I thought that that connected really nicely to some of the really interesting parts of the book where you talk about the ambivalence of locals and how some of them had internalized this stigma and many people there didn't like Talabasha at all and that kind of gave you a bit of a jolt because it you talk about how it challenged some of the quite romantic assumptions that you might have had before and I'll quote at length here from the book something that you write so you say at one point quote As an enthusiastic Istanbul resident and someone incensed by the glaring social injustice inherent in much of the rapidly occurring urban changes promoted by state forces and private investors, I was sometimes unthinkingly and somewhat naively opposed to all radical change to the city's fabric, which is doubtlessly why I expected resistance to be straightforward and coherent. My own subjective reading, intimately linked to my political allegiances and sympathies, led me to assume that people threatened with losing their homes, their workplaces, and their social networks due to urban renewal would, of course, put up visible and possibly collective resistance. My commitment to social justice led me to align myself with defiance and to feel strong sympathy for protest, which obviously coloured the lens through which I initially looked at and for resistance tactics in Talabasha. I was secretly looking for a political struggle, for a joint protest and for strong solidarity ties between all affected residents. After all, they were all in it together. This is why I expected that their apparent togetherness, their seemingly unproblematic sharing of spaces and laundry lines would clearly be reflected in their resistance and their defense of the endangered neighborhood. Therefore it came as a surprise when I heard that some Talabasha locals were not only willing to have their houses demolished but were actually excited to be promised a flat in a modern high-rise apartment building on the outer edges of the city in exchange, happy to leave their old homes behind 
I was bewildered when I heard residents cheering for the government-led cleanup of the neighbourhood. I'd been so convinced that the description of Tyler Bashir as a besieged but tightly knit community that found strength in its diversity was true. So could you just talk about this difference that you observed throughout the research process of what you assumed would be the case when you started the research, the attitudes among locals in the neighbourhood, this more complicated and ambivalent reality where there was a, a fair amount of diversity in people's opinions there? Yeah, actually, I went into the to the research of my dissertation topic in the beginning was actually resistance. You know, I was looking for grassroots resistance in the neighborhood and not necessarily organized grassroots resistance, but, you know, individual resistance as well amongst people. And yes, like, you know, like you said from the quote, I kind of went into this romanticized idea of like, well, of course, you know, like people will be displaced. Of course, they will resist, you know, as one group against the state that wants to displace them. That was my, my expectation. And I was very quickly disabused used of that. It was very confusing. And actually to the point that after a year of field research every day in the neighborhood, I was like, oh my God, I have nothing. You know, I can't, I can't write this dissertation. I have nothing. There is no resistance in the, in the sense that I expected. And, and on the contrary, many people who are kind of like, yeah, you know, as you said, you know, let's, let's get this thing done. Let's uh, clean up this neighborhood. Oh my God, it's so dirty here anyway. We deserve no better. So the territorial stigma lens was something that kind of helped me to calibrate, you know, the idea of, okay, Okay, so resistance does not happen in the same way, in the way that I expected it to happen, or kind of also wished, I wished it to happen, but I have to admit that that's what I'm trying to say also in the book, that I really wanted this, you know, because, you know, I would have done, you know, in my kind of romantic idea, I would have resisted, and why don't they, you know, this uh, naive approach to complex matters. So territorial stigma helped me to look at it differently because the stigma, the stigma part was already there. You know, I was already aware, like when I said in the very beginning in this conversation, I was aware that there was a weird idea that seemed very fixed in people's minds about what Talabasha was, you know, how Talabasha is, how it's perceived, even by people who have never, ever been there. You know, like I had conversations with people who knew exactly what Talabasha was like, but had never actually set foot in the neighborhood. But they were convinced they knew exactly what was going on there. So that was a very fixed image that was fascinating. And once I was made familiar with the theoretical concept of territorial stigma, this helps. Like, okay, so that's actually something I can I can look at. You know, this idea that uh, stigma can also also be attached to a, a place. And this is true, you know, for a very small neighborhood. This can be true for a whole country. You know, that certain fixed ideas are attached to a place that then stick to people that live in that place. That was something I could actually sink my teeth into in the research. That was a bit of a relief. And one of the ideas, so Loic Vacon, who came up with the term of territorial stigmatization, he claims that people internalize the stigma. You know, after a while, people will be like, yes, I, of course, you know, we live in a neighborhood that really is bad. And um, this kind of leads to uh, an atomization, you know, of, of the community in that place. It leads people to retreat to their private spaces. They try to leave. It's detrimental to, to solidarity, to resistance also. And also what people then start doing often is they blame other groups in that place for the bad reputation. You know, there are certain fault lines. People blame certain groups for the plight that they're in. And these were things that I did see in Talabasha. You know, I, I described this there. People did internalize this. And there was definitely, definitely this phenom phenomenon of like, you know, lateral stigmatization of kind of blaming other people for 
why Talabasha is bad. And these fault lines were indeed not random either in Talabasha. You know, there were along very clear political, sociodemographic fault lines that were that were true for all of Turkey. You know, that Kurds were being blamed or Roman neighbors were being blamed or trans sex workers were being blamed for like the bad reputation. So this happened sometimes on a more abstract level, you know, that people who had Kurdish neighbors got along, so ethnic Turks who had Kurdish neighbors got along with these Kurdish neighbors brilliantly, but then on a very kind of macro level did blame the Kurds, you know, and uh, this vague vague idea of, oh, they came, you know, from the East and uh, in the 80s and 90s. And since they came, the neighborhood went uh, downhill. The same was true for trans sex workers, um, that people blamed them, you know, for the kind of moral image that the, the neighborhood acquired. Later on, you know, this kind of <laughs> the stigma or this blame turned towards Syrian, uh, Iraqi, then Syrian refugees who started to move into the neighborhood. So there was always kind of a punching down in a way where people blamed blamed others, but not structural, not social injustice, but other people that lived around them. But that was not the only thing that happened in Talabashib. One thing I can maybe not mention is, you know, this nostalgia that you often hear, you know, like, oh, it used to be so nice. It's this Beolo nostalgia. People used to wear their best clothes. And this nostalgia often like projected onto this non-Muslim community that used to live there. Like, oh, when the Greeks lived here, you know, they <clears throat> they were so well-dressed. They looked after the houses. Everything was clean and wonderful. And we played on the street and it was safe. <laughs> without actually ever mentioning where they went or why they're gone. So, and also often by people who were not even in the neighborhood when there were still any Greeks there. So this nostalgia was really something, a story that had kind of uh, acquired a life of its own in a way, you know, and people were repeating these cliches, even though they had not possibly seen any Greeks because they were 25 years old and they had never had a Greek neighbor in their life in Talabasha, but they were convinced that the Greeks were still there. Everything was better, for example. So this is also a way of like this lateral denigration and the kind of nostalgic image of it used to be nice, but then the Kurds came and the transsex workers came and the Syrians came and everything went to pot. This was another way the people internalized it. But it was, like I said, not the only thing that happened. Talabasha also there was a very strong sense of community and people did praise their neighborhood often to me. And often the same people that were saying, oh, it's dirty, it's horrible, you know, in the same breath <laughs> praised the neighborliness, for example, that was a real mahal. So these things were not necessarily coherent. People changed their minds on this as well. What I'm trying to say is this internalization was not the only thing that happened. It, is some, it's, it, it did happen, but it wasn't, it wasn't all that happened. I was one of the annoying foreigners who actually lived in Talabasha when I first moved to Istanbul. That was in 2010 when I was there. And I was there for about a year and a half. And I did definitely sense that there was this sense of community, as you describe in the book. But at the same time, it wasn't a very nice place at all. You know, there was a lot of <laughs> gangs around, uh, violence. Yeah. You heard gunshots quite often. Yeah. Um, there was drug dealing on almost every corner. You saw a lot of unpleasant scenes, really. And it was very dirty as well. So it's so easy to for people to think that everything was great before and to be romantic about the old version, but it was pretty, pretty grim, actually. Yes. <laughs> so the people that, that, that did say that it was like better before definitely were thinking of way before 2010. You know, they were thinking the 60s, 70s, you know, that's what I meant with this weird nostalgia, sorry, with this weird nostalgia about the non-Muslim community that used to live there. 
there was this idea of before the Kurds came, that was a big, that was this big fault line that united a lot of ethnic Turks in this lateral denigration or against this new Tarlabashi, against the newcomers in inverted commas, because they themselves were, of course, newcomers. That was also something that was often brushed under the rug. But people were not, you know, were not saying that it's great, that it was great. There was definitely a sense of like, something needs to happen. And a lot of people, and this again, you know, especially women, for example, women who had families, were very unhappy in Tarlabashi and very unhappy with the way things were and they did feel unsafe. They were unhappy that there was no playground. There was They were unhappy that it was so dirty, that everything was, you know, so uncared for, that it was difficult to walk on the street. But children, small children, you know, even more difficult, you know, that's not a place you can push a pram around or something. So that, that was not something that anyone denied. People recognized this, but could only also rec- but also recognize there were many things that were good about Talabasha for them in their in their specific situation sometimes like the transsex workers for example you know that very like okay this is a place where I can live in relative I have really relative safety you know Talabasha is often described as a kind of refuge for outcasts you know for marginalized people for people that did maybe not easily find a home elsewhere in the city or not in the city center at least in the same way where you had lots of yeah lots of possibilities to kind of fly under the radar in a way, you know, for recycling workers, just as true as for sex workers, as for migrants, where you had a little bit the feeling of, I can be here without being harassed constantly by overzealous neighborhood groups or the police or whoever, uh, at least for a while. So that that was important. And then, you know, when it comes to drug dealing and garbage, for example, these were two topics that were discussed all the time in the time of the project. It was something that the, that the municipality used extensively to stigmatize Tarlabash, extensively saying, like, look, it's an unsafe place, it's a dirty place. You know, and people recognized this, and there was this sort of feeling of shame and internalization. But there were also people who said, but look, shouldn't the municipality be ashamed? Shouldn't they do something about it? So yes, it's true. There's drug dealing. There's a certain amount of petty crime. There's thieving gangs that find refuge in Tarlabasha. But since we all know that, why don't they do anything about it? You know, there was a police station in Tarlabasha. There was one right across the street of Tarlabasha Boulevard. Where's the police doing something about this? If the garbage trucks are able to collect the garbage on Istiklaja Desi three or four times a day, why are they not able to come to Tarlabasha more often and clean up? So there was also this kind of consciousness of, okay, it's true, there's, you know, there's social problems here, there's problems with crime, there's problems with garbage, but where's the municipality solving these problems for us? Because we pay our taxes, we do our, you know, we live here, we are citizens of the city, why why do they find Talabasha fit to be neglected like this? This is not our fault. This is all, these are services that the state should provide for. So there was also the sense of something is not quite honest about this discourse, you know, to stigmatize Talabasha as dirty and criminal and not do something about it. For the garbage, there was even a kind of sense of, oh, you know, they do this on purpose. They dump the garbage here on purpose. They don't come here on purpose. So it looks dirty. There were even rumors like saying like, oh, they, they sent pickpockets here. They sent uh, criminals here to make it look even more criminal than it actually is. You know, there were all kinds of wild rumors going around the neighborhood in the time of the project because this was a very convenient argument for the municipality. Talabasha is horrible. It's dirty. It's criminal. We have to get rid of all of it. We're just going to wipe it all out. This was kind of handy, a handy argument. It was just why this uh, stigma is often used all over the world to justify uh, problematic renewal projects. In 2019, the Council of State actually ruled that this Talabasha renewal project was actually not in the best interest of the public. And it cancelled the entire thing, even after most of the buildings had been demolished and the whole thing was basically put into limbo. After that 
court ruling. It's a bit murky what happened, but it seems like the project continued despite that ruling. Not surprising for people who (laughs) see how things go in Istanbul a lot of the time. And the mayor declared that uh, everything would go on as as before the Beyoğlu mayor. And it seems like the the project is still under construction, but it's all a bit murky. It's kind of walled off in a lot of the place. Talabasha Bulvara, the approach roads into Talabasha are kind of not accessible anymore. The old road that I used to walk down to get to my home down there is not and hasn't been accessible for years. So could you just update us really with the project? It's it's over 10 years since it first emerged, almost 15 years actually since it was first announced, and it's still not finished. Nobody really knows what's going on. It's yeah. completely different to what the initial project was announced as, and most of the people who live there have been kicked out. I mean, what is the latest with this project and, and where does it stand at the moment? I, I have to say, like, I don't, from the legal point of view, I have really no clue. I didn't follow that in the last years, mainly because I also couldn't come to Istanbul for pandemic and child reasons. But um, the, the project, like I said, last week I was in Istanbul and the construction continues unabated. So this cancellation doesn't seem to have any impact on anything, which, you know, seeing the state of the country is not a big surprise. I do know that some people who made deals, had to make deals with the, with the municipality, passed away in the meantime. Because, you know, it is, like you say, it's, it's 15 years. Like some of the people that I talked to at the time were in their 70s, you know, when they signed these contracts with the municipality. So, I don't know, I, I suppose like their children hopefully will maybe be able to, to at least get what they their parents were promised, but there is no transparency. People that live around there say maybe their homes will be incorporated into the project. Maybe not. That was also not clear. For a while, there was the rumor that, you know, this was just the first stage of the renewal project and it would continue into Tarlabasha. Because what you have right now is this very um, freakish plasticky looking development and then one street over you have the old Tarlab like the old Tarlabasha unchanged if nothing a little bit more dilapidated because so many people had to leave so I don't know what the what the plan is if the municipality plans to to to, to do more if there's any money um, there were countless rumors of bankruptcy on the side of uh, Gap and Shad or like their subcontractors subcontractors changed several times when we tried to talk to the construction company, people on the ground, it was never possible. It was never even allowed to take pictures there. Like there were always security people like running after us. Oh, don't take pictures. It's not allowed. I don't know with what reason, you know, it's a construction site. It's not a, it's not a military complex or anything, but it was all very secretive, not transparent. That was a problem from the beginning. So now I'm not surprised that this is still the case. But I can say that, the, you know, the, the social networks and ties that uh, held this neighborhood together, at least, you know, inside there is gone. Businesses had to close. People left or changed uh, locations. There's, of course, also a lot of uh, these apartment hotels that have uh, shot up on the fringes, you know, of this project. The trans sex worker community is completely gone from that street. I also don't know where they are. Like this is, yeah, Mücke was, I described this in the book. She she left and fell into really hard times into depression, started uh, using drugs and her friends did not manage to pull her out of it. Yeah, and a lot of the, the solidarity networks just just fell apart. And this is like an extreme version of what happened in many urban districts. In Talabash, it was a kind of cause de celebre, but it was far from unique. And you talk in the book about how there were so many other districts, Geju Kondo areas and other less historic disadvantaged, often dilapidated inner city neighborhoods that were basically usurped and turned over to large urban renewal projects. And obviously the people living in them were displaced and, and put in these 
big housing projects on the outskirts, uprooted basically. But you talk about how these neighbourhoods were central to the AKP's economic strategy of fully integrating as much urban land as possible into the neoliberal real estate market. So could you just talk about that? To what extent Talabasha is representative of a much broader trend in Turkey's kind of urban development model? Yeah, I mean, Talavasha was not unique. That is for sure true. I don't know much about the other neighborhoods. So Suluku, I mentioned Sulukule. Sulukule was kind of at the same time, but started before Talabasha started. Became a little bit of the red flag also for Talabasha residents. So Sulukule was this Romani historical neighborhood that also has been turned into like a horrific city. I don't, I, I don't know, some gated community development. People were chased out to a Toki housing project. I think 40 kilometers away from Sulukule, they almost all came back and now live kind of in basements around the old Sulukule. Because again, these kind of work and social networks that these people were integrated in were there. They didn't work in these other places. Of course, the construction companies attached to the Ark Party play a big role here. You know that this is the big driver of the AKP economic model. Construction, 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 construction on a big, big scale. This kind of housing as profit, real estate as profit, this neoliberal idea that, uh, you know, a city has to be marketed and a, c- a city, you know, has to deliver profit, like houses are not to live in, but to make money with. And yeah, typically these are the only people who are happy, who are really happy. You know, like you mentioned, some people were happy to move away and were happy that their neighborhoods were destroyed. I mean, that is probably true in some cases and probably in very few cases remain true because, you know, like in Sulukuru, you saw people signed over the houses. They left. They left to these Tokyo houses far away. Maybe some of them thought, oh, this is nice. This is modern. This is better than my old ramshackle house on Sulukuru for a little little while at least, but really quickly realized they could A, not afford it. B, it was not possible for their work. It was a sad place. You know, these Tokyo housing developments are very sad places far away from the city, far away from any kind of social life, really. So the only people I think who are really happy and really profited from these renewal projects were developers, construction companies and developers who made a huge profit with them. And a lot of the neighborhoods that were destroyed in urban renewal projects were even Ak Party neighborhoods, neighborhoods that voted for the Ak Party interestingly. And there's lots of research in this as well. But yes, what I can definitely say is that the only people that were really happy with it were developers and construction companies. They made a lot of money, a lot of money. And also a lot of times these tenders go to the very same companies every time. And they're always very close to Erdogan and his family. So that is not a secret. That is definitely also uh, at the core of this whole thing. But the city, and I have to be careful not to remind this, but the city, you know, changes for, for the worse. It's a lot of like very, very fragile and very, you know, integrated into each other networks, places, ties, all being ripped apart. You know, like a city has a certain it's a way, it, it, the city is fragmented. It is ripped apart into a very, it's very, it becomes more segregated. It becomes more, the, the logic of the city kind of falls, falls apart to make profit. And I mean, especially with, you know, gated communities and stuff, if a city becomes kind of ripped apart into these suburban Toki enclaves, or you live like in a fancy gentrified, you know, neighborhood where no one else can afford to live anymore, that doesn't make a nice city. That doesn't make a functioning community. It doesn't work also, I think, in the end. Something very valuable and very important in a city is lost when you rip communities apart and then separate them into the poor, the undesirables, the rich in this way. 
And obviously the elephant in the room of the conversation that we're having is that we're speaking just over three months since the earthquakes that caused such devastation in southern and southeastern Turkey on the border with Syria. Obviously, there was so much talk after those earthquakes about the scale of the, de- the destruction and how uh, a lot of people were putting that down to the development model that basically, in many different ways, led to a insufficiently safe housing stock. And a lot of that came down to cutting corners, overlooking various safety measures in the interest of profit in a lot of cases, but also just neglect. And I just wondered, I mean, you've written on the urban development model and how that contributed to the scale of the devastation from the earthquakes. You must have had an interesting perspective on what happened due to the the deep dive that you went into uh, Tala Basharin. Um, I was just thinking that, so the profit, of course, the, the profit, like the profiteering is, is one big aspect. But I was also just thinking that Tarla Basha was renewed, not with help of the disaster law that came, I think, in 2012, 2011, you know, when they started to declare uh, urban areas disaster zones, saying like, these are in an earthquake risk zone, we have to renew them ASAP. And it often turned out that these were like areas that were in very uh, expensive real estate areas and not you know, necessarily and actually the most risk areas of Istanbul. So Talabasha was not, not yet integrated into that. But what did resonate is how expert advice and expert uh, opposition to urban renewal was sidelined. That was something that I thought about after the earthquake a lot. You know how absurd it is that you have the most vocal and most experienced urban experts, you know, Mujala Yapic, Typhoon Karaman, in jail in Turkey. You know, these are the people who have been warning about this, who have talked about it, who have risked, I mean, now they're in jail, but who have often been the crosshairs of, of the state for their research and their work for years. And the fact that they're in jail is, is so telling. In, in, in Talabasha, you know, because, of course, the, the Chamber of Architects, they opened a court case against the Talabasha project at the time. They were very vocal against it, warning of it, were saying it was illegal the way it was done and that it was not in the public good. So this sidelining of, of civil society, this kind of going over the head of this expert advice, that was something that I heard from people a lot after the earthquake when I talked to people about, about what happened and why, why it was possible to cut these corners, why it was possible to go ahead with projects in that area that then turned out to be these horrible death traps. Because this happened often against, you know, against the advice, against the opposition of these these civil society groups. And urban renewal was also weaponized. I mean, even now, you know, like these urban renewal projects that were proposed also in those cities and then opposed by often the Chamber of Architects, by expert groups. Now, you know, the, the government saying, yeah, but we proposed these urban renewal projects and we couldn't do them because you opposed them. So you're to blame. You know, there's also this weaponizing of, of that. They claim these urban renewal, renewal projects would have prevented this, knowing full well that this is not true. I'm, I'm sure that they're well aware that uh, this is just trying to, to cover up their own culpability. Whereas the people that really were able to, to advise on how urban renewal should happen and where, 
and under which circumstances and, 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 and how people living there should be involved and how they would be able to stay also in these places. Because like, I mean, Turkey is an earthquake country. Earthquake safety must be paramount. That is a super important topic. Urban renewal is a very important topic. And I, I think very many people in Turkey want, you know, urban renewal to happen. You know, they want their houses to be safe. And, and, and there's many experts who make very, um, to give very important advice on how to do that and how to do it in a way that people will not, will not be screwed over or will be able to stay in their neighborhoods already. These social ties will not be ripped apart. It can be done. You know, I'm not, I'm not an architect. I'm not a urban developer. I don't know, you know, how to make a house earthquake safe, but there must be ways. And there's people who know how to, you know, how to do that without destroying a neighborhood, without destroying livelihoods in a more democratic, inclusive way. And that needs to happen in Turkey. That is, there's no question about it. It's a huge project and I don't envy, you know, any mayor now or any person who is involved in this because it seems such a crazy, difficult amount of work, but it can be done. And the people who can advise on how to do it well, they're in jail. You know, this, is, this seems absurd and, and horrible. And um, there's people who, you know, who shielded against this, this profiteering, who shielded, who had, who had ideas of how to do it right. And they were not hurt, were sidelined and in the end jailed. And I think this is maybe where the focus should be on. That was Constance Lech. Many thanks to her for joining for episode number 197. Remember, you can download the book in PDF form for free from the website of the publisher Transcript. I've put a link to that over at turkeybooktalk.com. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going. You can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury. Transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website, turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts, or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe. And I always enjoy hearing from listeners, so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. And finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.